0: My God, I don't believe this. The rose. The rose was a symbol for the Holy Grail.
1: Welcoming back to the show, previous guest, Sue Dionysus MPH. Uh, this time to talk about a subject we have both uh, engaged with for, you know, well over a decade to the great mystification of most people we know, um, which is the work of Daniel Gerhard Brown, better known as Dan Brown, um, who wrote *The Da Vinci Code*, which remains one of the best-selling novels in all of history, one of the best-selling books in all of human history, um, and nevertheless has become a somewhat forgotten figure despite his immense um, footprint on on the culture, on global culture, um, just uh, you know, fifteen years ago or so. Um, So anyway, thanks for joining me.
0: Hey, um, I'm happy to be back. And um, I guess I'm happy to be talking about Dan Brown. Uh, I'm always (laughs) too involved in Dan Brown. And and I think in many ways, Dan Brown has shaped our entire social and intellectual life in ways that are so profound um, that they're difficult to explain and frequently disturbing to other people.
1: Yeah. And so hence, you know, this usually doesn't go down well as a sort of party conversation. Um, people don't want to hear about it. They didn't really want to hear about it 15 years ago. Um, you know, ba- basically you met people either who um, at that time who read the Da Vinci Code essentially took its revelations as as truthful, um, as, as pointing to an actual cover up by the Catholic Church of uh, Jesus having been married to Mary Magdalene and issued a line of um, ultimately French royalty, um, or you basically thought it was kind of a joke. Um, And then I think there was, and I would guess probably the vast majority of Dan Brown readers were, were in between those two camps um, because obviously he was read by tens of millions of people around the world and, I don't think most of those people, you know, became true believers in the um the uh you know Merovingian line or whatever, but um in the restoration of the Merovingian line, but nevertheless, um they they found entertainment in it. And so that's I, I think the third category was is basically people who, who would say, well, yeah, it was sort of just airport novel entertainment, but didn't really go beyond that. Um so I suppose our our task today will be to attempt to explain why um why it's still worth thinking about the cultural imprint of this um you know now surprisingly neglected, although quite wealthy um, man. So right. I, I, I thought we could start just by explaining briefly the the somewhat obscure reason yeah. why we ourselves got interested in um at first the Da Vinci Code and then eventually read the rest of his work as well as the work of various imitators and precursors. Um, so roughly, um, the thing that, you know, both of us first noticed about, um, Brown was his, you know, coinage of this, this imaginary discipline of symbology, right. Which is the, the profession of the, um, Harvard professor, Robert Langdon, who's the protagonist of the, Um, The five novels, I believe, stretching from Angels and Demons being the first one to Origin being the most recent. Um, So, And um, Da Vinci Code, obviously the most um, widely read of those being the second in the series of novels featuring Robert Langdon. So um, basically, symbology appears to be, I mean, I suppose there are two things that stand out about it first. One is that um, you know, there you have a Harvard professor who is an expert on all sorts of odd, you know, what what he himself would call conspiracy theories inv- involving Illuminati, you know, Rosicrucians, Freemasons, and so on. Um, but he, so you know, essentially his his discipline appears to be a kind of study of conspiracies, but he will generally sort of disavow any kind of true belief in the significance of these, right? The, 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 sort of stories about, you know, the Rosicrucians or the Illuminati or whatever are, are academically interesting, but of course he doesn't actually believe them. And this is, you know, repeatedly the situation that he finds himself in at the beginning of these novels, and then eventually discovers that, um, the, that the, um, that you know the 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 people he thought were just kind of figures of myth are actually out there, and then you know related to that, um, his sort of method of interpretation is is one where he takes some kind of cultural artifact, a painting, or something like that, and I mean, essentially tries to decipher it as a code, and that code generally has a specific. Uh, the, The function of that code is generally to point at something in the real world, right? So once you've deciphered that code, it might simply, you know, point you in a particular direction, right? Point you to some other object that you then have to decipher. So the deciphering of the code essentially turns the object into a kind of, you know, treasure map that, you know, point that often then points you to other, other objects that you also have to decipher, so I think the thing that struck us as well as other friends who became um, curious about this, you know, at the height of its popularity is that um, in some ways it's it's a kind of inversion of the some of the basic principles of um, humanities academia, of like elite humanities academia that are generally associated with the rise of structural linguistics and later post-structuralism. And just to sum those up briefly, you know, the first would be that, the text is all that matters, right? That, um, that, you know, the text, there is nothing outside the text to use one, you know, common way that this is understood to be expressed, Um, you know, or in the case of like Ferdinand Saussure's linguistics, you know, essentially what is of interest is the sign itself, the reference, whatever the sign refers to is, is kind of bracketed and put aside. So, you know, what, what Langdon does through his interpretation is something like the opposite of this procedure because he assumes that i mean it's complicated right because on one hand he takes these texts um cultural artifacts and uses them to point to things in the real world right so they always what what's most important about them is deciphering their reference or Or whatever it is that they they point to or gesture towards right so the 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 idea of some kind of internally consistent text that has to be understood in its own terms is essentially the opposite of his procedure and then on the other hand you have this idea that he's he's merely kind of um tracing this mythology of you know freemasons or whoever and so he you know on one hand repeatedly starts the novels by saying i um i don't I don't really know or care whether these people actually exist, but the point of the novels is that he always discovers that they do. Right. And so again, this kind of referentiality and and importance of referentiality right. um, as a way of understanding like what it means to interpret code right. is, is, um, is foregrounded. Right. So this was kind of the thing that I, I think both of us and other people, we now kind of got curious about with this work and um, found it at least odd that you know brown had sort of invented this harvard professor whose disciplinary procedures seem to represent the opposite of what i mean not only kind of engaged with all of this material that is generally not engaged with in academia but also seem to be the opposite of the most standard ones you know prevalent since let's say the 60s so what would you what would you add to that
0: I mean, so another way to put it is that, you know, a lot of um, humanities work after French structural linguistics assumes that if you want to understand, you know, what something means that you, you look sort of horizontally, you look at around at the other signs that are adjacent to whatever it is you're trying to understand, right? Um, uh, Signs point to other signs and and not at the not to the world. And so meaning is a matter of kind of contextualization and um, and the difference between signs. And it as opposed to the core procedure of symbology, which is that you know whatever image you have in front of you, um, it always points directly out into the world. And it seemed to us remarkable and insane and almost, supernatural that um, an idiot like Dan Brown could have come up with such a precise inversion of a complicated Baroque and uh, highly technical discipline like structural linguistics and seemingly without his own knowledge. And um, right.
1: And people often at the time would
0: say, oh, I mean, first of all, he was often compared to Umberto
1: Eco. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but, you know, Eco himself was sort of a figure of this, um, you know, essentially a, a sort of um, major popularizer of this kind of, you know, post structural right. linguistic sensibility. And at the same time, he, um, you know, he writes a novel. Uh, I mean, he writes a few novels that. You know, in some ways, you know, as bestsellers kind of anticipate aspects of the, the Brown moment. But, you know, if you read Foucault's Pendulum, um, you know, basically um, it's it, in a sense is more about um, it, it's it, it's essentially about um, kind of creating a second order theory of of conspiratorialism or conspiracy theory. Um, rather than essentially proving on some level that these conspiracy theories are actually true, which is what the um, which is what the uh, um, Brown novels consistently do, although you know with some slight complications to that. So right. So and then, but Echo is also himself a, a semiotician, right? And he, you know, by profession, professor of semiotics, and. You know semiotics would be and and was often brought up as the academic discipline that resembled symbology, but I suppose what we're saying is that in fact the opposite is true right that that symbology is a kind of imbert, inverted semiotics
0: yeah it I want to say something else about what it's like to read Dan Brown, um which is that I mean you touched on this before, but you know you tend to get caught up in either hating Dan Brown's prose um, on the one hand and distancing yourself from the text because it's stupid, repetitive, sexist, traffics only in obvious tropes, is a copy of better books. Um, There's lots of reasons to not enjoy Dan Brown. And then you kind of distance yourself from the content or you become a kind of believer and uh, think that by reading Dan Brown, um, you've discovered something about the actual world. And that these two stances are actually sort of copies of the epistemological differences that we're talking about, right? On the one hand, either you read the Da Vinci Code and actually then go out and read other books about, you know, the secret history of Christianity, or you stay on a surface level and claim that you just enjoy the text, right? you just in by making fun of it or that you don't really take it seriously. So the experience of reading Dan Brown actually Tends to echo and mirror the uh, the the two things that we're talking about here: semiotics on the one hand, um, uh, which stays at the sort of apparently at the surface level of the text, or this fictional discipline of symbology that uh, dives deep and extracts uh, something from the real world as the meaning of what you're talking about. And this is this comes back to to haunt us and. Um, and comes back to haunt Umberto Eco later as well, which is something maybe we can talk about.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think just one other thing to say about Brown is, you know, the Da Vinci, and we'll get into this more when we get into the Da Vinci Code, um, but, you know, he, you know, is, is sued for, cribbing much of the sort of conspiracy plot from this other book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is a book sort of by and for true believers, right? And it's worth noting also the clearest example of the reference, right, of this idea that, you know, the the function of interpretation of cultural artifacts is to lead you to, you know, a reference, an object in the world that it points to, is that, you know, the, the Da Vinci Code is the most traditional of quests. It's a quest for the Holy Grail. Now it turns out the Holy Grail and this will be full of spoilers. So anybody who wants to read Dan Brown without spoilers should probably tune out and uh, do the, do the reading. But, um, but, you know, the, the, the Grail turns out to be essentially the, the remains of the sacred remains of Mary Magdalene, right? Which, um, you know, is, is what the, all of this whole chain of sort of cultural artifacts ultimately point Langdon to. Right. And he is actually able to physically locate the, um, this reference. Right. Although for reasons we will get into later, he, you know, eschews sort of digging it up and uh, making it public, which, which I think is, is an important, an important point to, um, to just introduce right at the beginning. Um, that all of these novels are built around the same dynamic, which is this process of uncovering secrets by deciphering codes, but then at the end, deciding to keep a secret concealed, right? Often keep it literally buried in the ground as is the the case at the end of the Da Vinci Code. And so, you know, part of what's interesting about the cultural impact of the novel that we mentioned is, you know, it it sort of popularizes this conspiracy tract, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, far more than that book itself, you know, and brings the ideas to a much wider audience. Um, it spurs a great deal of, of sort of, um, I mean, all sorts of levels of interest in these kinds of ideas, right. And of, of people actually going out and trying to do their own research. Right. And at the same, and it also, you know, spawns an industry of like tours of Paris you can do that are, you know, to see the sites in the, um, in, in the Da Vinci code, but at the same time, you know, Brown throughout his novels um, at the end, always concludes that something has to remain concealed. Right. So there's this process of unveiling, which always ends with a, an explicit um, commitment to um, keep some secret, you know, secret from the majority of the population, except for an elect few basically. Right. And so this is, this is a pattern that I think is, um, you know, is, is one that I, I wanted to emphasize at the beginning just because it will, um, it will be important to what we'll talk about here. So f- this will be the first of a, a few episodes um, on Brown, and we will be talking about the pre-symbology novels, um, the pre-Langdon novels, which are, as we'll discuss, um, something like more in the lineage of the Cold War techno thriller, although written after the Cold War. So we'll just be talking about those today. And then in future discussions, we'll address the core Langdon novels, um, as well as the the later ones. So uh, you had
0: something else to say? Yeah, one of the sort of orienting questions is, why are these books so enjoyable if they're apparently so bad? Um, They repeatedly give you a kind of satisfaction um, where you, where secrets are buried again, as you've said, and trying to understand um, why the Da Vinci code seems um, so popular and so enjoyable and led us to trying to unearth the the kind of genealogical history of the symbological novel. And that turns out to be involved in vast fantasies about international political stability, the relations between the state and science, um, cryptography, um s- state surveillance and s- the sex lives of the deep state and politicians. And and also the
1: the rise of the civilian internet, I think, um, right. which is explicit as a subtext for or as as a, you know, central element of the plot in um, Brown's first novel, Digital Fortress, um, but then you know it c- continues to kind of crop up in his later novels, but in ways that um, in ways that are less uh, you know less central but but I think you know one of one of my theses about brown, which we 'll get into today is um you know it's it 's not coincidental that you know even though his his novels are his his most famous novels don 't really involve technology or the internet per se, that they appeared right at the moment when the sort of mass adoption of information technology was, you know, taking place around the world. And um, also with that, the moment at which our relationship to secrecy became different in ways that might seem trivial, but that I think, you know, profoundly reoriented our sense of our place in the world. And by this, I simply mean, suddenly having to use passwords all the time right having to use and memorize passwords all the time right and so having to um come up with ways of you know and this, this is um a, a central plot point in all of brown's novels right that you have to come up with passwords that are um obscure enough but not so obscure that you know they're they're completely undetectable or or you know not memorable enough right And so that, you know, that basic dynamic of um, kind of navigating this new landscape of secrecy, I think is a kind of, um, you know, a a sort of structure of feeling that it it seems to me important for understanding what, what spoke to people about these novels that are all about you know, encryption, decryption, um, and so on, right? And, that, and that's really the through line of all of the, the novels, even the pre-Langdon ones,
0: right? Right.
1: Um, so it's worth pointing out a couple biographical facts. So I think a, another kind of observation from the outset is that the, all of the Langdon novels take place deep within what, um, you know, Menchus moldbug Curtis Yarvin calls the cathedral, By which I mean, basically the nexus of the deep state and academia, as well as you know that there's some elements, some places where sort of journalism comes into it, um, as well. But you know, fundamentally, it's it's about it's it's really just about the nexus between the state and and academia. And then in um, you know, particularly the first Langdon novel, Angels and Demons, you have another important institution come into it, which is the Catholic Church, which which continues to be a central um, element in most of the Langdon novels, to some extent or another. But, also, all of these are set, you know, kind of deeply within the cathedral, right, because you have protagonists who are either Harvard academics, or, um, you know, NSA analysts, or, you know, various other sorts of you know, again, sort of top level, you know, sort of top clearance um, positions within this kind of constellation of power. Um, Dan Brown himself is sort of, uh, he, he appears to be a kind of fail son of the old New England wasp elite. So he, although not in the end a fail son, but he, um, he actually grows up on the campus of Phillips Exeter, um, he attends Amherst. His father is a teacher at Phillips Exeter. Um, he then attends Amherst, and after that, has a an unsuccessful um, attempted career as a musician in Los Angeles. During this time, he meets his future wife, um, Blythe, who will go on to, um, you know, seemingly play a major role in kind of propelling his writing career. Um, up until their acrimonious divorce a couple of years ago, so um basically he you know the the he he spends his twenties um basically making these kind of unsuccessful records, which are very weird. You can find a most of them if you 're interested well, I, I highly
0: recommend musica Animalia, his, <laughs> right. um, his kid's record which yeah right uh, he made
1: it right a record of like songs about animals for children. Um, yeah. he, he also has some composition that was recently debuted by an orchid. it seems he's maybe returned to music lately, kind of now that he's just enjoying the royalties of his many.
0: And um, he also wrote a self-help book in there. Oh, right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, um, um, about <sighs> men to avoid, I believe. It's a self-help book targeted at women. Right, and he wrote that
1: with Blythe, correct? With
0: Blythe, yeah. And I think
1: he actually wrote it under a a Danielle Brown, like a a female pseudonym, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Transactions between men and women are going to turn out to be a core concern from the beginning to the end of his career. Yeah.
1: So, absolutely. So, in any case, I I think the important thing to to note here is that he's somebody who really, um, you know, grew up, in the, in the heart of the, the sort of old American elite. Um, And, you know, both his, his, uh, you know, the, the school that he, you know, spent his entire childhood on, you know, went to school at Phillips Exeter, you know, has sort of incubated a significant portion of the, the sort of old American elite um, over the past, you know, 200 years. And, you know, so that's the world that he's, he's part of by, by birth and upbringing. And so, you know, then he kind of um, spends time as a, a, a not, you know, particularly success or a a totally unsuccessful musician as I, as I understand it. And then he, he returns to teach at Phillips Exeter. Um, I believe he teaches Spanish which, you know, <laughs> there's quite a bit of, um, you know, several of the novels are set in Spain or Italy. I mean, and generally the Mediterranean has a significant pull for him, but um, perhaps we can get into that later. But, you know, it's so, but, but when he becomes a novelist, you know, we, I don't know, you know, who he knows or, but, you know, one can assume that um, he's writing about, you know, people who work at the alphabet agencies, as well as at Harvard with at least a great deal of sort of personal familiarity with the type of people who end up doing that sort of thing. So right. he also grows up an Episcopalian, you know, he's often perceived from the Da Vinci Code as sort of an anti-Christian, um, you know, his, his relationship to the Catholic church as I think we'll discuss is a lot more sort of ambivalent than it's often portrayed, but, you know, he's again, basically, in every, He checks all the boxes of a sort of New England WASP elite, but, you know, in some ways you can see him as a kind of emblematic figure of the decline of that elite, because essentially instead of going into, you know, one of, one of the more prestigious professions that was probably open to him, um, you know, his father was a mathematician. It's even conceivable that he could have himself become an NSA analyst, you know, given that kind of a background or something like that. But instead, he becomes basically uh, a failed musician, and then a writer of, eventually, extremely successful. Although the first two novels that we'll talk about today, I don't think were, I don't know exactly how much money, but they were nothing close to, um, Da Vinci Code. So eventually, extremely pr- uh, successful author of, you know, airport pot boilers. That, you know, while not particularly respectable in the world that he comes out of, this kind of elite educational world um, of the cathedral nevertheless are are a sort of you know in some sense a kind of insider's portrayal of that world um, so and i think this is kind of a an oddly under remarked aspect of the the novels um that you know they they're immensely popular but the world they portray is quite a sort of recondite one of of essentially the the sort of american elite um and the the sort of corridors of power particularly again the interface between academia and science on the one hand and um the sort of state power structure on the other
0: so one of the ways we can understand this biographical note in his novels and in relation to the decline of this elite is that these novels are fantasies about what it would have been like to be successful right so his financial success as a novelist um is separate from his success as a New England elite. Um, and he's a failure as a member of the elite, and he's a success in the market. Right? And but the success right. in the market involves fantasies about success as a member of the elite, right? Um, being a, a government intelligence analyst, um, being a Harvard um, professor of symbology, being beautiful, being brilliant being sexually successful, all of these are involved in the core pleasures of the Brownian novel.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I I think uh, we should start with Digital Fortress because it is the beginning. Um, it's published in 1997 and it's really, um, you know, I, I read it a number of years after I'd read the, or sorry, 1998. Um, I read it a number of years after I had read the, you know, the first couple Langdon novels. And I was really stunned by its odd prescience um, because, you know, I don't, I, I, I think Brown, you know, I, I mean, you said before he's kind of a, he's not, he's not very, he doesn't seem very bright, right. He's, he, he, he doesn't come across as a, as a bright or insightful guy. I think he has a kind of, I, I think if he has a talent, generally it is the talent of plotting a certain kind of novel. Like I think he does, you yeah. know, demonstrably succeed at, um, at sort of pacing and plotting of, of, of fictional narrative. Um, and that, that's an area where he does seem to just have a kind of raw skill that he was able to discover and put, put to great effect. Yeah. Um. Otherwise, you know, he, he really comes across as, as, as kind of, um, Kind of adult a lot of the time, but what what struck me about Digital Fortress was that it um, it really anticipates you know things that didn't happen until um, or or at least things that you know the broader population wasn't really aware of until something like WikiLeaks happened, which was you know ten years plus after this that you know people started paying attention to that. So you know somehow he really captures something about um you know what the mainstream adoption of the civilian internet means particularly as far as sort of state security and state secrets
0: goes yeah it it's almost oracular it's it's really shocking and impressive to go, to go back and read digital fortress It's um
1: and it it also has this odd character who's um who's a kind of you know genius um cryptographer who's named, um, uh, Tankato, right. Um, and say yes. and it's really hard not to see him as a kind of Satoshi Nakamoto <laughs> prototype. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, you know, he, he really, if, if you think about the rise of, of both something like WikiLeaks and something like Bitcoin, you know, this figure he creates Ensei say is really a, a kind of composite of, of these, um, these figures who appeared or at least became publicly known, you know, only like a decade later. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, should we say something about what Digital Fortress is about? Yes. That's probably a good idea. Um, the central protagonist of Digital Fortress is Susan Fletcher, um, uh, employee of the NSA. And I believe they're, head cryptographer. Um, uh, Susan Fletcher is remarkable. We're told that she's a super genius with a 170 IQ and also that she looks like a swimsuit model. And um, Susan Fletcher's irresistible desirability uh, as the perfect woman will come back again and again. Um, Dan Brown is um, a, understands himself to be um, a feminist and, uh, and the form of his feminism um, is fascinating, but certainly involves um, uh, being a babe and at least being told that you're, that this babe is, uh, uh, you know, the youngest ever professor of very hard sums or the the smartest analyst ever or a master mathematician. And um, Susan Fletcher uh, is involved in um, uh, a crisis at the National Security Agency um, involving code breaking.
1: And so she, An important, you know, element of the whole story is the idea that there, the, the NSA has this supercomputer called Translator, a transliter L T R T R, which
0: like you know, Tumblr,
1: right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, the, basically, um, what Translator does is it it can break, you know, ostensibly break any code, right? So it sort of trawls the internet, you know, breaking into every institutions, every corporations that, you know, it it can get into anything, right? It, it can get into your email, it can get into, you know, um, the British prime minister's email, whatever. So, um, the the so translator is essentially a kind of, you know, it's a digital panopticon, right? Right. And it um Another important point is that it's it's a project that is so secret that basically no one except people with the highest level of clearance know that it exists. Um, So the, um, you you know, the the term that's I think is kind of useful here is there's a distinction in cryptography between Arcana Imperi and Secretum. So Arcana refers to a secret that is the existence of which is not even known, right? So in other words, um, you know, any any kind of um any kind of secret which the very existence of which is only known to a handful of people who are directly involved with it would be arcana, whereas secretum just means um, you know, for example, the fact that like everybody knows that I have various secrets. For example, my passwords, right? I have email passwords, I have bank passwords, I have Right. So everybody knows that I have those secrets. They just don't know what they are. Right. Similarly, everybody knows that the U S government has secrets. Right. But it, but we don't know. um, And this is perhaps one difference between the average civilian and the, the state, which is that, um, you know, basically, even if you don't have access to my secrets, you can approximately guess what types of secrets I have and, you know, what would be necessary to find out what they are. Whereas the state, enjoys a greater level of secrecy because it can conceal the fact that it even possesses the secret quite readily. And so the drama of Digital Fortress revolves around the fact that translator, this supercomputer that essentially can read everybody's email, can get into every, you know, database, every um, every secret trove of information um, on the internet is unknown, right, to all but a few people. And so... Enter um, Ensei Tankado, right? The proto-Satoshi Nakamoto.
0: And the designer who, of Translator.
1: Who himself designed it, but then um, sort of disavowed the project because it you know, gave too much power to the state, as I, as I recall, and has now gone rogue and on one hand has created this um, his own sort of cryptographic system called digital fortress, which translators unable to penetrate uniquely unable to penetrate and um, has threatened <clears throat> that um, he will make the algorithm that he used to create digital fortress, essentially available to the highest bidder. If he, um, if if, if, the NSA does not reveal the existence of translator. Right. So essentially it's a kind of hostage situation.
0: Right. Right. So the NSA needs to stop Tonkado in order to secure the ongoing um, transparency of communications um, to the U.S. government. And... Um, in, into this, we we find um, Susan Fletcher's boss, uh, Trevor Strathmore, um, who uh, is, among other things, um, extremely horny. Uh, this horniness is not a, a decorative element, but is actually a core component of these novels. Um, uh, Susan's desirability um, is. Uh, going to turn out to be directly related to the motivations of, um, the U S government at the highest levels. And, um, another theme that will, that will continue. So, um, Susan is, uh, engaged to David Becker, um, who is, whose beauty rivals Susan's own. And, um, is a uh, struggling academic and linguist and occasional uh, translator for the U.S. government, who is sent overseas um, uh, to Spain um, to recover a ring possessed by Ense Tancado, who has apparently died abroad at the beginning of the novel. So Susan is separated from uh, David and a lot of the action characteristically of Brown involves jumping back and forth um, rapidly between action scenes um, in in various locations and traveling from one place to another in order to retrieve some important object um, that will um, reveal the truth. So...
1: I mean, it's worth noting, you know, in relation to what you said about these novels are a kind of fantasy, um, which are pretty easily legible as, you know, in a sense, Brown's own fantasy, and he makes them that way. Um, so including having, you know, the the male protagonist is David Becker, DB, and is also, um, you know, is, is over, is in Spain, you know, goes to Spain to recover this ring, which as it happens, I believe is actually where Dan Brown says that he wrote most of this novel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he's clearly kind of using this figure as a, who, who's on one hand a struggling academic, but on the other hand kind of gets this opportunity to do something important for the deep state, you know, is, is an interesting sort of, um, you know, fantasy projection of himself.
0: Right, right. It's um one of, one of the important things that's happening here is that uh the characters in Digital Fortress are in an important sense sort of disorganized versions of the protagonist Robert Langdon in the future, right? Um the Robert Langdon is who is also um understood to be very athletic, very attractive, um, and a expert code breaker is, is here sort of split into, into multiple characters on the one hand, um, uh, the cryptographer, Susan Fletcher and, um, and the, uh, extraordinary squash player, um, Becker. Uh, and, um, and so they, they, these characters also have a kind of characteristic hollowness. They're constantly surprised by what's happening to them. And in fact, seem to have almost no agency of any kind. Their basic facts are um, a total mystery to them. They're constantly needing to look things up that you would think that they would know. Um, They seem to not know anything at all about their own disciplines. Um, and, um, and to be kind of um, hollow vehicles for knowledge that is happening elsewhere, right? So um, all Susan does is uh, decrypt things, right? She doesn't know anything herself exactly. What she does is take um, knowledge uh, elsewhere and render it transparent to some kind of knower. And that knower here is the state. Um, uh that's her that's her whole function and um uh, so we can think in these about like these these books about you know what is it that the state knows and how does it know and um what does it need um uh not not to know um and uh what kinds of enjoyments um is it trying to? Is it trying to seek by, um, by rendering the world trans- transparent here? Right. I think it's also interesting that the the international drama um, of digital fortress is um, is the af- is, is the context for it is the aftermath of the Cold War. So we're told that Ense Tancado is um, uh, uh, a cripple, um, and that uh, his mother was um, killed as a result of radiation exposure um, from nuclear weapons dropped on Japan during World War II, right? And so he is physically the result of U.S. global domination of the world scene. And there's a question here about rage against U.S. hegemony. And revenge against the United States um, and uh, so the, one of the things that the state wants is to ensure some kind of stability, stability against um, uh, an international order threatened by terrorism uh, and criminality and the the vehicle for which is cryptography, right? Secrecy is what destabilizes the domestic and international universe. And so Tonkato is intervening here and generating, he's both the the thing that generates the, the possibility of total surveillance and a person that wants to maintain privacy, by threatening us global hegemony right
1: yeah and it's worth saying here that you know there there's a a somewhat simple way of trying to figure out what dan brown is doing is to think about the genre which i know you've you've done before and um i believe even wrote about some is you know that Clearly, this novel is a kind of successor of Digital Fortress is a kind of successor of the Cold War techno thriller, right, where you have, um, you know, figures like Tom Clancy and so on. And, um, you know, many movies in that of that ilk as well. And, you know, there what you have is this kind of representation of the U.S., security state, you know, performing its function of of facing off against this enemy and not, you know, nevertheless, often things get a bit blurry, you know, there's a lot of intrigue and internal betrayal. Um, But, you know, what, what happens to the genre when the conflict that animates it has, has disappeared. Right. Right. Um, You know, which interestingly is sort of a parallel question to what do all of these you know, agencies and entities that were developed in order to um, in order to contend with this threat do once the threat disappears, right? So those two problems kind of develop in parallel, right? And so, you know, one way to think about this novel is it's it's kind of addressing both of those questions, right? Because it's it's in a sense trying to pioneer a new kind of techno thriller where you're. Um, where you're dealing with a new kind of enemy. Right. And, and it turns out that enemy is on one hand, as you said, he's a product of the sort of um, imperialistic overreach of the U S security state. On the other hand, he's um, he's, you know, somebody who was kind of brought into that inner sanctum in order to help it, you know, perfect its mechanisms of, of control and then who eventually also revolts against it and sort of goes, goes rogue and becomes a renegade. And so he's really a, a kind of, um, you know, to, to have him as the sort of um, enemy number one of, of the United States is, is essentially a way of kind of imagining one of the types of threats, which is linked, as you said, to all these other ones, right? Because the point is if he makes digital fortress public and available, um, you know, the threat that is, that is brought up by the figures in the NSA is that it will essentially, um, enable all sorts of, you know, bad actors to, you know, to, to have, to be able to use the, the most, um, effective cryptography yet known to man. Right. So, it says, digital fortress would never become obsolete with a rotating clear text function. No brute force attack would ever find the right key. A new digital encryption standard from now until forever. Every code unbreakable. Bankers, brokers, terrorists, spies. One world, one algorithm. Anarchy. So, you know, this is, I mean, on one hand, we have this new sort of enemy, right? Who is, who is a non-state actor, um, who, as I said, kind of anticipates these, you know, Julian Assange, um, Satoshi Nakamoto, et cetera. Um, and then on the other hand, we have him developing this um, this tool that, you know, will profoundly destabilize, I mean, ostensibly profoundly destabilize the world by kind of, democrat- essentially by sort of democratizing um, cryptography,
0: Um, But Digital Fortress is not what it seems. Um, It turns out that Trevor Strathmore, Susan's boss, has in the past suggested that uh, the government itself can offer people secrecy, but secrecy with a backdoor in it, that it can have, there can be some sort of officially authorized cryptographic algorithm, but Privately, the NSA can read all of your email. Um, this proposal has been rejected at the start of the novel, and it's it's coming back. Um, the uh, Digital Fortress um, uh, has locked up Translator. So a lot of the action of the novel involves uh, the fact that uh, translator is encountering this algorithm and the physical machine um, can't stop trying to break this encryption code. And um, in order to uh, stop Digital Fortress um, from destroying translator and revealing to uh, the entire world, the, the secrets of the government, um, Digital Fortress will itself have to be decrypted by Susan and the crack team of high IQ cryptographers. Um, so, Digital Fortress is uh, the algorithm is introduced into the NSA, and the the thought here is that it's it's wearing away the security of the governments and opening up the possibility of black hat hackers from all over the world to have access to NSA information and NSA information is important because it enables us domestic and overseas operations. So the concern is that us global hegemony will be, um, uh, disrupted not merely by, um, People understanding that they can read your email, but everyone out there, the world of the internet, being able to read the government's email. And then they will understand that the U.S. engages in various kinds of international surveillance operations, and um, and by rendering those public, they will no longer be affected. So, um.
1: yeah, and we can think about how this, again, just anticipates so many, um, you know, the whole backdoor notion, you know, is reminiscent of when um, the San Bernardino um, mass shooting occurred. There was a whole discussion about the question of a backdoor on sort of Apple's hardware. Um, Obviously, there's the Snowden revelations. I mean, it really just, Anticipates a great deal of what what we've been talking about for the past twenty years,
0: without a doubt. Yeah.
1: Um. So I think you know it's worth sort of um, contrasting that odd prescience with the extraordinarily dumb resolution of the, the
0: novel. Yeah. Which,
1: again, um, you know I'm we're, we'll be uh, spoiling things throughout. So, um, but. And but in a in a, a sort of resolution that proves to be very typical of Brown, which is that um, there there's this kind of uh, mad scramble to so you know digital fortress turns out to be this kind of worm that has essentially um, you know overtaxed translator so it it cannot effect, um, function effectively and that. Um, will also sort of um, as you said you know render the um, render the secrets of the government um, legible to all right, right. so um, so the idea is that you know digital fortress is um, right so but actually the point is that um, when you unlock digital fortress it will then, eat away all of the NSA databank security, right? Right. Um, So, so basically, um, the, the thing that happens is that they must, um, so the translator is basically physically overheats and explodes, which is a, a moment we might, you know, try to think about the allegorical implications of, but, you know, so at this point, Digital Fortress threatens to kind of reveal all of the secrets encrypted in the NSA's um, data bank. And so they have to decode it, at which point it, um, it, it, it transpires that <laughs> they are able to determine the, the password based on, I believe, um, you know, essentially biographical details about Nakamoto or about Tenkato, excuse me, um, right. which, you know, again, uh, makes a great deal of, I mean, and this is like a point that is um, repeatedly ob- observable in Brown, which is that, you know, even though it repeatedly purports to be about the sort of um, most advanced modes of cryptography, you know, even this this dude who's the most um the most advanced cryptographer in the world turns out to have a password that can be guessed based on just a few basic biographical details of his life. Yes. And without explaining the sort of ridiculous sequence of sort of interpret, unless unless you think there's something worth dwelling on about it, that leads them to us, what they eventually discover is that the password is the number three. Right. Um so you know, this kind of situation where um you know super genius cryptographer ends up having incredibly dumb passwords that could probably easily be broken with brute fo- with any kind of brute force operation um right. is uh typical of brown right that that there there's always this falling back into the most simplistic forms of encryption
0: right absolutely um and how they it's Arrive at that password actually is. I, th- I do think there's something worth dwelling on there, which is um, that they they themselves. Uh, uh, what three is supposed to be here is um, the difference between um, uranium and plutonium's atomic numbers, right? Um, so what are they? Two thirty eight and. Uh, um, and two thirty-five, right? And a reference to Toncato's, you know, own own biography. But in order to um, discover how this works, they 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 need that none of them know, um, but the difference between um, the two elements, and they have to spend some time um, understanding what the word difference means. Right? They, um, uh. And they, uh, and they do this by accessing the web. Um, So in this moment of drama, um, you know, Susan turns to her coworkers and says, you know, I I need access to the web. Is there a browser here? And then yeah, Netscape sweetest. And then Susan um, says, come on, we're going surfing. So, you know, essentially, uh, search, uh, you know, Googling something is also the way in which you get access to the password that that gives that reveals information. So um, it's uh, and then there's this, uh, you know, crazy moment where there where where, um, you know, essentially reading Wikipedia is being dramatized. Wikipedia doesn't exist yet, but um, it's some sort of um, Uh, early version of it. I mean, the book even includes sort of tables of contents about the functioning of atomic weapons and, um, and there, and this kind of urgent scrolling happens um, where they're attempting to um, uh, understand um, both uh, uh, what the word difference means and, um, and, and, uh you know how nuclear weapons work and thus and thus um uh, th- th- their stupidity here is um shocking right so um it actually it actually they're trying to think about the difference between plutonium and uh and uranium um and and i think i think we should read a little bit here um Susan quickly scanned the data. There's a lot of information here, a whole chart. How do we know which difference we're looking for? Um, One occurs naturally, one is man-made. Plutonium was first discovered by a number, Jabba reminded her. This is a um, grotesquely fat uh, government programmer. Uh, We need a number. Um, Susan reread Tonkato's message. The prime difference between the elements The difference between we need a number. Wait, she said, the word difference has multiple meanings. We need a number. So we're talking math. It's another of Tonkato's word games. Difference means subtraction, right? So the smartest people uh, in the world here have failed to notice that words um, have multiple meanings. And importantly, that, uh, Everyone in the room has advanced degrees in mathematics, and yet it has taken them a lot of scrolling through the internet to remind themselves that one of the things that the word difference means is subtraction. Um, It doesn't matter um, for the kind of people that these are uh, how advanced your degree is. In the end, you need to go... Uh, and look things up in order to understand um, anything at all, and this kind of knowing by scrolling, um, and, and also this this kind of failure to understand uh, 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 words, and um, the the revelation that words have more than one meaning is is going to become a characteristic. Component of Dan Brown's protagonist methods, right? So, I mean, here, here, what we've got is, uh, you know, the extraordinary revelation uh, dramatized as a moment of international uh, danger, and uh, that you know, the dictionary um, has more words, words in the dictionary have more than one entry. Um, it, it's it's really remarkable, and it's easy to it's easy to think that. Um, um, that it 's just stupid, and the stupidity here um, is is actually a distraction um, because you know we, we began this conversation by talking about the difference between symbology um, right, and the method of symbology is to take a sign and discover an object for it that right? there 's some sort of one one to one correlation between words and the things that are meant by the words, and that you can go out there in the world and and get something by um by just by thinking about a word and and the the fundamental tenets of um, structural linguistics, which are about exactly what Dan Brown says here, difference and um, subtle differences between words so um it's not difficult to see um this kind of epistemic drama happening um um here and if you get if you get distracted by how dumb they are, then you can't see that they're working out um um, methods that here embedded in Digital Fortress is uh, the, the, the the sort of urtext for um, the methods that are going to become the entire plot of uh, Dan Brown's Langdon novels.
1: Right. And, you know, I, I think another point I would make here is that he has these people who are, again, operating in the kind of inner sanctum of the alphabet agencies. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of going through the rituals of these kind of rituals of knowledge and discovery that you know are becoming you know common currency for the average person in the same period right so you know they're going on the internet and looking stuff up um and so i think that's another point that's kind of interesting here which is that the the plot is about the sort of democratization or or the threat essentially raised by the democratization of of knowledge and but also of the the protection of knowledge with, with cryptography, right? So the democratization of knowledge on one hand uh, that, you know, everyone can find out about what the NSA is doing, yeah. but on the other hand, the democratization of, of secrecy as a function of sort of universally available advanced cryptography. So then at the same time, we have these characters who are kind of within this secret space engaging in these kind of, um, the these these sort of um hermeneutic practices that become essentially the the sort of toolkit of the you know guy who does his own research on the internet right yeah. and and then i think this point about difference and the subtle di- i mean the fact that words can have multiple meanings right here it's worth thinking about you know because i i would say another reason brown is is worth um engaging with today is you know, he has a significant role in, you know, the sort of a certain moment of the popularization of conspiracy theory, right? And of sort of conspiratorial thinking and conspiratorial methods, right? And here we might think about what happened with QAnon, right? And Pizzagate, where essentially you had these kind of, um, these sort of hermeneutic methods that sort of emerged spontaneously out of these online communities, and so one of the things they did was they went through John Podesta's emails and started thinking about the different things that words could mean, right? The fact that they might not mean exactly what they seem to say, right? And so they engaged in this kind of decryption where they, um, they kind of um, established this code that you could use to decrypt that text. Right. And that that would point you to a particular place, i.e. Comet Ping Pong, (laughs) um, which, which I happened to have just driven by last week because I was visiting a friend in DC who lives nearby. Um, But in any case, you know, it, it, it really does, um, you know, I'd say another thing that is prescient about, I mean, although in ways that seem absurd because you have these sort of supposedly the most elite um, analysts in the world kind of, bumbling through google searches and things like that but nevertheless they're engaged in this kind of um in this kind of hermit this kind of pop hermeneutics that is sort of evolving out of people's um you know essentially out of people's relationship to the internet and the way it shifts their relation to knowledge right
0: right um absolutely and um you know, mathematics here turns out to be a kind of numerology, um, and the the way in which um, cryptography, you know, supposedly a um, uh, mathematically intense, obscure discipline, uh, functions is that it's something actually available to everyone, and that simplicity and timeless relationships between words and their kind of associative meanings are, are, are something that anyone can access in order to do the work of decoding. Um, it's, um, I think another,
1: another point I wanted to follow up on was, so this whole, um, you know, the, the repeated linkages with the, the A-bomb, right. Yeah. Um, it's it's really remarkable how closely this corresponds to um, Virilio's the information bomb, right? Where basically you have this idea that, you know, you have yeah. I mean, the the essential weapon of the state that that is developed out of the most advanced techno science in, you know, 1945 is of course the bombs dropped on Japan, um, and now in this post Cold War moment. That that moment, you know that moment inaugurated the Cold War essentially, right? And what this what Digital Fortress is about is you know the information bomb being the new um, the the new you know both the new modes of security but also the new modes of danger induced by this um, latest phase of technological evolution, right? So you know in a sense. Um, you know, translator is itself, uh, uh, you know, is sort of one information bomb and then digital fortress is the sort of other one. And there, you know, there's a kind of um, repetition of a a kind of nuclear standoff between these two, um, these two machines. Right.
0: Right. And what do you do when a object or an algorithm threatens stable resolutions of international politics and the knowledge of the alphabet agencies, you erase it, you destroy it. Um, so the, you know, in the, the resolution of this, uh, involving the sort of comfortable return to the the uh, uh, Ordinary functioning of the U.S. surveillance state um, involves the destruction and unavailability of important pieces of technology, important objects. Here, um, another theme that's gonna that's gonna come that's gonna come back to us. I mean, over and over again, there's a kind of denial of knowledge, and that we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. Um, Um, mathematical knowledge scientific knowledge um uh and the the restoration of a kind of um opacity is you know solves the problems of the novel
1: right um, yeah and and this is um you know again the repeated pattern is always that the the sort of secrecy of certain secrets needs to be restored that's right right. needs to be maintained arcana Um,
0: comes back
1: yeah but you know, the other point here is that, <laughs> and this will kind of come back to a, a theme you've phrased. Um, so on the other hand, we have this um, sort of subplot involving Strathmore's sexual pursuit of um, Susan, right? Which induces him to basically hire an assassin who will, you know, preempt um, Becker in obtaining, obtaining the ring while also killing Becker so that then Strathmore believes he can have access to Susan. So we have an odd sort of incestuous threat here because essentially, you know, Strathmore is the, the older boss. He, um, you know, is, is in a sense, her kind of um, father figure within the agency. And so he, he's essentially attempting to, do away with her suitor so that he can monopolize her for himself as a sort of primal father figure. Right. And so then this plot line, interestingly, and this kind of brought up what I said about the allegory with the explosion of translator. So, you know, translator explodes and he himself, and Strathmore is killed in the explosion. Right. So there's a kind of, um, I mean, it, You know, I think it's important to note that I think Brown is always kind of a, you know, he's always trying to propose some sort of path of moderation, right? So there's some kind of sense that translator was overreach on the part of the NSA, right? And so there's something, um, you know, its explosion um, enables a kind of restoration of, of a certain amount of balance because it, it represented something, you know, so he, he endorses Tankado to the extent that, you know, it's, it seems to represent a threat that is too great. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, digital fortress also represents a threat that is too great. And eventually they kind of cancel each other out, but, um, you know, this, this kind of overreach on the part of the institution, right. With which, which kind of matches post cold war U S hegemony, um, is then kind of, you know, leads to this self-destruction, which is then mirrored in the sort of self-destructive madness of the, of the um, leader of the NSA, Strathmore, right. Who's kind of, um, you know, who's, um, you know, who's sort of power hungriness takes the form of a kind of drive for sexual, a kind of, you know, Deranged drive for sexual domination.
0: Yeah. Um, right. And, uh, you know, the, the, at, at a sort of very basic level, the novel ends with um, uh, David Becker and Susan Fletcher getting married and um, having sex. And uh, thus uh, restoring the, the um, harmonious
1: interface between academia and the state. That's right. That's right.
0: And um, uh, you shouldn't be sleeping with your father. You should be sleeping um, uh, with your husband. And uh, you're in order for that to happen in a normal way. We have to work out some basic edible drama and kill daddy. And, uh, and, and that's successful in this novel. Um, this is remarkable because this will become increasingly untenable as a um believable resolution within the Brownian universe. Um, uh, um, the the viability of horniness and the possibility of the threat of horniness and the possibility of um viable sexual relationships um turn out to be um always present um as dan brown dramatizes the restoration of um, the stability of the national and international um, political universe, um, and he. So you know, Strathmore is. Um,
1: I would say emblematic of you know he's, he and translator, which he sort of essentially dies in the arms of, are sort of emblematic of the hubris of this. Yeah elite that's, that needs to be reined in by, and this is part of the character of Dan Brown's feminism, I would say, right. That, you know, it's important that Susan Strathmore, that, sorry, Susan Fletcher, you know, essentially be poised to take over for Strathmore because um, what the, the sort of hubristic um, excesses of this power elite, you know, which on one hand have become sort of drunk with power, particularly due to, you know, unilateral post-Cold War hegemony, but also due to the kind of, um, you know, the the, the sterility of the, um, the sort of old elite world, right? It needs to be kind of rejuvenated and also kind of moderated by um, feminine influences, right? Yeah, and so that's absolutely. why, um, you know, this union at the end, I think is really a sort of, Fantasy of the the reformed self propagation of the of the elite.
0: Absolutely, um, issues of um, of incest taboo are 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 going to re- return again and again. Should should we maybe talk about deception point here a little bit? Um, yeah,
1: sure. I think we've I think we've covered
0: these texts are...
1: fortress mostly. Um, I did want to say one other thing about it, which yeah. is just. Um, you know, if if you look at the cover, um, I, I don't know what your, the cover of your copy looks like, um, but, you know, one of the classic covers, it's, you know, it has sort of what looks like a black screen with a sort of standard digital display. And then it says, who do you trust at the top? And then the rest of it is just kind of encoded gibberish, right? And I think, you know, one thing that I think is important about this novel is Um, And then my, my copy just has a a sort of huge amount of, you know, in in the, in the sort of background, it has a huge amount of, you know, completely encoded text, right? And um, part of what this, um, this novel, I would argue is about is um, a world of uh, a world, a world that is illegible, particularly illegible to the state, right? So we might think of like James C. Scott and seeing like that, seeing like a state, right. That, um, that what this, this technology threatens is a world that is no longer legible. Right. Um, So on one hand it, it, and, and there's kind of a, you know, there, there's it's initially posited as this kind of absolute either, or where on one hand you have a word world that is completely legible by the state, i.e. what um, translator promises, right. Where, literally everything is, is legible at all times. Um, you know, and this of course was kind of the specter that was then again brought up by the NS- um, Snowden's NSA revelations and so on. Right. And then on the other hand, you have this threat, which is that of a world that is completely illegible, right. Where, where essentially everything is encrypted. Um, everything is in every, everyone's stuff is encrypted for everyone else. Right. And so the state simply cannot, um, cannot read the world anymore, and of course you know in a sense this is also what you know today all of the sort of you know crypto enthusiasts are are still proposing right um a world that that is illegible that becomes illegible to the state and so you know i th- I think another important thing here, which kind of goes back to this post structuralism is that you know, to me, this helped me understand what Brown's relationship is to post-structuralism, which is that he is not, you know, conversant with any of that theory or particularly interested in it, but he is interested in the same sorts of things that many of those theorists were interested in, right? And, and this, I would say, is one way of, of thinking about that, right? Where um, a world of total illegibility, you know, we might think here of um, the image of Borges's um, Library of Babel, right? Which was a major, infl- you know, sort of thing that a lot of the major post-structuralist thinkers cited, right? And where you essentially have this library of books that are completely gibberish, right? <clears throat> um, so, you know that that kind of um, Babelian prospect, right? Um, post Babelian prospect that digital technologies seem to portend is is the central threat that this novel posits and i would say it's arguably you know the same as or extremely closely connected to the threat of post-structuralism right which is the threat that um nothing is n- nothing is legible in any simple way right that it's um that that everything is encoded um and and there's no absolute you know there's no absolute standpoint from which it can be deciphered in other words there's no universal key right so you know this i think is the the sort of basic drama of this novel and how it you know another way that on a kind of epistemic level it anticipates what will what will continue to be central to all of his work but but in in a way that's more explicit and more directly connected to you know, the very things that we've been seeing as regards the evolution of technology in the past 20 years. Yeah. Good. So, um, deception point, another novel about state secrets, um, set in the deep state, um, also has a extremely hot female protagonist, um, Rachel Sexton and, um, but in this case, the the areas of the deep state that are featured are not the NSA, but the NRO and NASA. Right. So um, Deception Point also um, has certain plot similarities with the recent film Don't Look Up, which we might get into. But um, in any case... Do you want to give us the rundown of Deception Point?
0: Right, Deception Point um, uh, is uh, the the protagonist's Deception Point is Rachel Sexton, a um, uh, the the daughter of uh, a C- U.S. senator who's um, uh, vying for the presidency um, against President. Herney and or Herney, what is it? It's um, and it opens with uh, what seems to be a striking scientific discovery. Um, a rock um, buried in the Milne ice shelf that appears to have a, a fossil in it that m- must be of extraterrestrial origin. And th- this notion that um, uh, uh, a profound discovery has been made um, is, um, and and that science is going to be able to um, tell us something about the universe um, is what seems to drive the beginning of this, right? So. Um, NASA is at the core of this as the autonomous scientific agency um, uh, that functions within the United States with um, the NRO um, as, the, the, as its opposite number, right? So, um, deep in deception point is the difference between the operation of the state on the one hand and its insulation from uh, the operation of knowledge. So the drama involves uh, uh, who has control over NASA and whether or not um, knowledge uh, in the form of NASA's work is can be used for Political purposes. So once again, we have an organ, the National Reconnaissance Office, um, which does essentially spying for other agencies, um, and uh, and its dependence at on one level on on NASA because NASA will put its spy satellites into orbit, and we have political actors here. Um, attempting on the one hand to, to, keep, to keep these agencies apart and on the other to put them back together. Um, this is all involved in the perception of space research. So at the beginning of this novel, NASA is has experienced a decline as it has today. And private interests uh, want to open up space for um, exploration. Uh, there's the possibility, as one of the characters will explain later, of uh, generating a, uh, a new Wild West um, and dissolving NASA into, um, uh, uh, on the one hand, the sort of world of the market, or on the other hand, the world of U.S. surveillance is um, it's advocated by some of the, uh, characters here. So the president sends, um, to the Arctic, uh, a character that basically corresponds to David Becker from the other novel. Um, uh, this extremely irritating, uh, uh, oceanographer, Michael Tolland, um, and, Except Uh, unlike
1: Becker, he's a celebrity. So he, he's a, he's basically a celebrity academic. So in that sense, he's, he anticipates Langdon in a different way, but
0: he's, he's like Attenborough or something like that. Right. And we're told told that he's sort of, he's like wildly mediogenic and um, also quite hot as all, as all characters are here. And um, uh, to discover this, to, to investigate the, and authenticate uh, this object uh, that NASA has discovered, this, this meteorite anomaly, which might um, uh, prove the existence of extraterrestrial life. Um, at the same time, we have um, a drama unfolding around um, uh, there being uh, uh, Rachel, who is, who is also sent um, uh, uh, to investigate the the meteorite, and um, they're attacked by some shadowy organization. Um, members of their team are killed, and um, they're or eventually just Navy,
1: Navy SEALs like figures.
0: Yes, that's yeah. right the the Delta Force. Um, so so there's there's drama here surrounding science and knowledge. And at the same time, um, there's drama surrounding um, the the presidency. And the presidency, um, although the existing president um, will uh, maintain NASA funding and believes in revitalizing NASA as a kind of cold war agency that exemplifies the um, power of the United States in the form of pure research. Um, And uh, his presidential rival, uh Senator Sexton, Rachel's father, who is presented as um a, a creepy threat to that creepy in many ways so he is also an agent of um uh uh paternal horniness um in that he is in he has had an aff- a- affair with his aide um gabriel ash who we're told is um uh uh Uh, has the looks of Halle Berry, um, with Hillary Clinton's brains and ambition. And, um, so, uh, his symbolic daughter here is somebody that he's, uh, he's had sex with and, um, she, she regrets it and, um, This is, this scandal um, has been recorded by his political enemies in the office of the president, who want to use this fact to discredit him. Um, Okay. And so So he,
1: basically, he's um, on the side of this coalition of business people who, you know, and again, this kind of whole interest in private space exploration is... um, Highly, pre- Another of Brown's um, highly prescient interests in this period. But so Sexton basically wants to, I mean, as far as the various interests arrayed here, we have Sexton, who, you know, is essentially being has been successfully lobbied by these private industry representatives who want him to run for president on this kind of message of Um, you know um, attacking NASA for its bloated budget and you know failed um, missions and you know basically for you know sucking up taxpayer money and doing nothing with it and so it's it's really this kind of classic neoliberal sort of Thatcherite program right where he wants to um, he wants and you know so again I think the post-Cold War Context is really key here because it's about, you know, what happens again to these agencies that were developed in that context, no longer serve that function. What what should they do, right? And so again, the the question of like what does a techno thriller do after the Cold War is closely linked to this question of what what should happen to these agencies that were developed to um, to uh, pursue, you know, or, or contest hegemony with the USSR. So then on the other hand, you have the the director of NASA and the sitting president. It would appear, I don't think they ever say, but it would appear the sitting president is a Democrat and Sexton is a Republican, right? Or maybe it does explicitly say that.
0: Yeah, I can't remember, but that's definitely the case. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So so basically you have NASA, you know, as a function of its own, you know... um, desire to continue receiving the the budget that it has received in the past and to not have its um, mandate sort of um, shrunk and then its activity is sort of um, farmed out to the private sector. Right. You know, needs some kind of great success in order to um, achieve that. And so that's essentially the backdrop of this whole story. So you know, should we, should we just kind of get to the main
0: revelations or? Yeah, we should say something about William Pickering, the director of the, the national reconnaissance. Office. Oh yes,
1: of course. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, the main villain, um, or uh, one, one of the two main villains here will turn out to be himself, the director of the national reconnaissance office, who is, um, interestingly actually Brown names him after, uh, the uh, former head of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, right? So Brown Brown is uh, uh, William Pickering is named after I think I think Andrew Pickering, like in the JPL head's name, um, and so so Brown is quite intentionally um, uh, gesturing at the mixture between science and political action. So William Pickering, the director of the NRO. Um, uh, his daughter um, has died in a terrorist attack and the terrorist attack he believes could have been prevented if uh, a spy satellite, the Vortex-2 that belongs to the NRO um, had successfully been in orbit. However, NASA's launch of the spy satellite goes wrong owing to um, you know shoddy space work by NASA, right? So while it will turn out that the meteorite is not, in fact, of extraterrestrial origin, um, it will turn out the meteorite is not of, of extraterrestrial origin, and that and that all of this has been orchestrated by Pickering who is in charge of the Delta Force, these assassins that are uh, roaming around attacking people and that he has masterminded this um, uh, the, this fake alien artifact um, to damage the campaign of the President of the United States who is a supporter of NASA's scientific independence right so, uh the this this there's a there's a kind of doubling of of villain vill- villains here on the one hand we have uh the villain in the form of senator sexton who um wants to privatize nasa um and uh therefore take away from the purity of scientific knowledge um which is supposed to operate for its own sake and that the its independent operating is supposed to actually be the, the sort of pride of u s hegemony, and on the other hand, we have a deeply intimate familial motivation for bringing NASA under the control of the u s surveillance state in the form of pickering's daughter's death right so at all at all points in deception point um, uh, na- uh, the the autonomy of scientific knowledge. Um, is being threatened with its absorption into the real world, to, you know, realpolitik, to um, uh, the market. Um, and, and this is this scene um, of the decay of the Cold War. So what's being imagined here is this, Im- this sort of ideological image of science as independent. Whereas NASA itself is a, a, you know, Cold War prestige project of the United States, right? So what, what, what the novel wants is to maintain a Cold War ideological position, which is that um, we, we know for knowledge, knowledge's sake But that itself is actually a moment of an old style of U.S. domination of the world that is breaking down now that there is no more USSR as the opposite number to the United States, right? So, um, all right, things are getting complicated fast here. But, um, yeah, so we have, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because then on the other hand, we have...
1: um, we have this other image of knowledge in the form of um talland right? right who is who who represents sort of pop science which on one hand is sort of um you know is is represented as not i mean it's his his being a pop scientist who makes you know popular pbs documentaries or whatever is is not represented as corrupting of his Um, integrity as a scientist. Right. And the fact that he's essentially like a guy who's gotten rich off of that. Um, So, you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, that, that partly relates to the status of these novels themselves, which is that, you know, one of the things they're selling themselves as is this kind of popularization of these more kind of recondite, you know, new areas of knowledge. Right. So this is why, you know, they're often called sort of brainy thrillers and things like that in the reviews i mean all of brown's novels and right you know essentially the idea is that he takes some ostensible area of knowledge although i'd say what that is gets more and more tenuous um and you know provides a kind of popularizing um account of it so anyway i just think it's it's notable as well that there's kind of this um on one hand, we have this contestation between this kind of old ideological model of knowledge as something that comes out of, um, you know, these government agencies that, you know, can can operate autonomously and free of pressure from the market, right? Then on the other hand, we have this, again, kind of prescient notion that, wh- you know, we can just sort of turn this over to the private sector, particularly you know, what eventually will be particularly the tech industry, right. Which, which can then, you know, with Elon Musk and so on, um, continue these enterprises with greater efficiency and so on. Right. But, but then we also have this third mode, whereas it's it's the kind of popularizing mode of knowledge, which is both represented by Tolland and by kind of what the novel itself is doing.
0: Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's, um,
1: which also kind of is interesting in relation to this drama of secrecy, right? Where the novel is on one hand kind of, I mean, these novels are, we'll get to a deception point, but you know, they're always in favor of the restoration of secrecy. Right. And yet, you know, their own status within that economy that sort of knowledge economy is, is ambiguous, is ambiguous.
0: Right. Right. They, they purport to uh, reveal secrets. I mean, let, let's say something about the sort of overall genre that Brown works in. Every book begins with some sort of statement about the factuality of the book. So, um, you know, deception points, um, wants to tell you that, uh, here we should just read the beginning of they, they have all of these, um, authors, authors notes at the beginning or, um, The Delta Force, the National Reconnaissance Offices, and the Space Frontier Foundation are real organizations. All technologies described in this novel exist. Or the opening of uh, Digital Fortress here. We have, pull it up, Um, an explanation, if I can find it. the NSA it's in digital forces purports to be a revelation that it has been a hidden organization from the public, but that it is actual real. Right. And then we have to remember that these are, these are novels, right. And their first thing they do is to state that they're facts. Um, and he has
1: a, um, you know, in, in at the, um, the thanks section that the, at the beginning, he uh, yeah, he says it. he has two NSA ex NSA two faceless ex NSA cryptographers who made valuable contributions. So he, you know, he's essentially pointing to his own sort of inside sources that have helped him yeah. provide an accurate picture of this world he's portraying.
0: So Dan Brown is telling you um, that. Uh, uh, that there is apparently hidden knowledge that you are being given access to, that a secret is being revealed, revealed to you by reading these books. Um, but at the simultaneously, there's a disavowal of uh, the reality of this secret, right? In the form of uh, simply the obligatory language that um, at the beginning that these are works of fiction. This itself will get dramatized as a in 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 the lawsuits between Dan Brown and his publishers and on the one side and uh, the authors of Holy blood, Holy grail on the other, right. Who um, make copyright claims on Brown um, except there's a question here about whether the status of their own book is fiction or nonfiction. So we'll, we'll, we'll return to that at a later point, I think, but yeah. um, it's uh and it does
1: take us back to, I mean, you know, this is a technique that's used in early fiction a great deal going back to like the 17th, 18th century that you have this kind of um, attempt to disguise fiction itself as, as a, a sort of true account and things like that. Um, right. And you have all these, just th- these kind of gestures that the function of which is to kind of anchor them in reality. Um and so again this brings us back to this question of sort of referentiality which um you know it kind of is central to the sort of epistemic right. conundrums at the at the center of these works
0: institutions are and it also brings us back to Dan Brown's um biography, right? Because there's a kind of decay of institutions that's happening, um, in these novels and in Deception Point, right? Where, uh, NASA is no longer functioning the way it should, uh, it doesn't do the political work that it is supposed to, and it doesn't do the knowledge work that it's supposed to. And at the same time, um, uh, What's proposed by the villains is a kind of incestuous collapse between uh, uh, of, of all agencies into one, rather than the kind of functional, um, you know, homeostatic exogamy of uh, of both USS, US, and USSR relations on the one hand, and the relations between um, knowledge and action. Uh, that is the separation between the alphabet agencies and we uh, you know, call it the cathedral, right? The cathedral knows, and um, maybe the alphabets act or something, right? Here, right? The NRO um, uh, uh, does things and, it, and it is in possession of elite teams of, you know, SEAL Team Six like murderers and, um, and, and NASA knows, and they enable each other under the hood, but you have to keep them separate um, in order to have the political universe of the novels, some sort of cold war resolution of powers continue to function, right? So once again, right, the question, um, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say, and um, you know, so this parallels the threat uh, posed by translator, right? Which, right which seems, I mean, which again is accompanied by this threat of incest. So um, yeah, it's, it's this kind of endogamous collapse of, of the agent of the sort of alphabet agencies into themselves um, as a result of the, as a result of the collapse of collapse of that exogamous um, um, homeostasis that you mentioned that, you know, we can think of as the Cold War, and and you know, part of this is the ideological, <clears throat> the ability to kind of sus- ideologically sustain the production of knowledge, right? Yeah, that it has to be, um, it has to be both autonomous and thus insulated from the market, but also, you know, useful in a certain sense to the the to enhancing the power and prestige of the state on a sort of, um, world stage. Right. So, so that's sort of the the situation that's being threatened from different angles, right. From on one hand, the threatened marketization, which risks kind of devouring the, um, the production of knowledge into the, the private sector and kind of subjugating it entirely to the profit motive, which, you know, the threat there is less, um, is not, um, you know, it is not understood as as that. You know, its results will be less good. It's. I think the threat is more understood as an ideological one that it will it will it will um, weaken the state's ability to um, sort of sustain the consent of the governed on the basis of a kind of ideological image of how it works.
0: Why do you think it would matter that uh, these? things can be discovered by reading Dan Brown rather than by reading just Bruno Latour or, um, you know, Sigmund Freud or, you know, any anybody else we've mentioned? Um, Good question. I mean, I think,
1: you know, Brown is, um, you know, part of what, part of what I would say is that, you know, as part of this kind of epistemic reshuffling that we've sort of seen over the course of our lifetimes, you know, many of the, I mean, Latour talks about that. We might think about Latour's text, uh, Why Has Critique Run Out of Steam, right? That that essentially um, these kind of um, ideological critique methods, for example, that, you know, the function of which is to kind of denaturalize and denutralize the sort of hegemony of the state, for example, or of its sort of associated ideological apparatuses that this kind of critique has just kind of become, um, you know, has has disseminated, not necessarily directly through influence, but just through um, the kind of, uh, I, I mean, I would say the kind of mediatic and technological shifts of the past 50 years. To the extent that it's, you know, and, and so the example Latour gives is, like, you know, he's, like, this sort of pioneer of of this mode of critique, but then his, like, you know, high school educated neighbor, neighbor is making fun of him for thinking that 9-11 was really, you know, what the government said it was. Right? Right. And so... You know, I think we have to understand, you know, again, the anticipations of something like QAnon or Pizzagate or another right. example we might think about here, but we might, we have to understand, you know, how these operations of critique and of kind of ideological denutralization, um you know, emerge out of sort of underlying, you know, sort of base level developments that you know disseminate into cultural awareness in different ways and and one of the nodes for that dissemination would be uh Dan Brown's novels
0: I yeah, guess that'd ab- be my <laughs> absolutely i mean i think it's i think it's like important to remember that um uh, cons- there there seems today to be a um, wrong thought, which is that interest in conspiracy, popular interest in conspiracy theories, is somehow new or increasing or increasingly threatening. Um, whereas it's simply the long-standing default mode of thinking about um, um, the United States politics and science here, and and that there's a long-term question here, which is what is the efficacy of understanding the conspiracy? Right, what happens? when you read, cue, write, where do you go? And what do you do? And what difference would it make that you understand the operations of the conspiracy? So insofar as people take Dan Brown um, seriously, and um, by take him seriously, I mean uh, speculate about the reality of the things he writes about. And insofar far as he claims that he's writing about real stuff, we can see the consequences of um Understanding this form of the truth um, and one of the one of the main consequences, as dramatized in the books is nothing um, uh, by understanding the conspiracy you, you understand the, the that you need to reinstate um, the existing political order so in the form of so Dan Brown is is a like major dramatizer of a certain kind of ideological recontainment where. So in the end of The Deception Point, we'll spoil it for you once again, they take the meteorite, which is revealed not to be of extraterrestrial origin, but simply um, a manufactured um, stunt um, by the government, and they kick it out of a helicopter and sink it. And they throw uh, this threatening object of knowledge away. I I think there's an, and, and reinstate a kind of, balance. Uh, NASA's independence comes back. You yourself read uh, and discover the nature of a conspiracy. And the result is that you um, disavow some kind of knowledge and everything goes back uh, to the way it was before. And the result of Dan, the Dan Brown publishing universe is that you buy more books, you know, books that are called things like the Dan Brown Code or so, the Bible Code, right? or things, things like, um, you just consume more of this, this literature. We have an interpretive process without end where um, rather than the, the, the no- supposed knowledge of the conspiracy that you're gaining have any sort of political effect. And, um, uh, you know, Pizzagate uh, has, one of the interesting things with Pizzagate is that Pizzagate, the sort of actual actors involved, you know, that like, you know, might go to comment ping pong and do something are in fact characters from Dan Brown novels, right? And there are people who don't understand that what that knowledge um, that you have is supposed to be knowledge without end and instead think that you need to act on it. And it's depicted as um, dangerous in these books and, um, and destabilizing and the kind of conspiratorial knowledge needs to be rejected and suppressed.
1: Yeah. And, that, you know, <laughs> part of why I wanted to bring up Pizzagate and, um, and uh, QAnon is that when we get to Da Vinci Code, one, one point that I will um, want us to discuss is the fact that, I mean, one reason it's surprising that it has not been discussed more in recent years is that, you know, it essentially involves the, the discovery of an elite sex cult that performs rituals that are in fact represented, I mean, Brown explicitly Stated that he modeled them on the ones represented in, I, in the film Eyes Wide Shut, um, which you know is generally reputed to be a sort of thinly veiled um, expose of the sort of Epstein world. So, in any case, um, you know this, you know the, you know one of these kinds of revelations of of recent years that Dan Brown's novels are about is, you know Epstein's um, demise in um, MCC. And, you know, this was, again, it's, it's one of these moments where, um, I mean, it, it could be the moment that would begin a Dan Brown novel, actually, but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because they often, they, they often begin with the, the violent death of some um, character, but um, as in fact does Da Vinci Code, which begins with the violent death of a sort of, um, you know, overseer of the, the revelry of the sex cult, but in any case, um we'll we'll get into that more later but you know this basic dynamic of on one hand this proposition that there's some secret which if divulged would change everything you know whether in a good way or a bad way um you know is is the premise of all of these novels right and the the basic structure of them is that you know you're you're sort of led along through the process of revealing um up to a certain point and then you were essentially Convinced, along with the novel's protagonists, who themselves have kind of undergone an evolution of their attitudes about this, that the best thing to do is simply to bury it again. Um, and so, in that you know, you have um, the end of the Da Vinci Code, where, as I mentioned, you know, Langdon discovers the location of Mary Magdalene's tomb, but you know, is not not interested in digging it up. End of deception point, perhaps the most um, remarkable of all. You know, this meteorite, which, you know, is previously thought to be this great scientific revelation is subsequently revealed to be a hoax, is simply dumped back in the ocean. Right. You um, know, one of
0: the things about that object, they're dumping the meteorite in the, um, uh, in the ocean that is uh, so interesting is... Um, what what marks it as a potential alien artifact initially is not just the origin of the rock on it, but that the, it's an unknown specimen, right? So there's a novel species that has been discovered um, in a rock that is, and, and what makes it a hoax is that it's been staged as of extraterrestrial origin by being, by being placed there, right? What's completely missed out in the novel is that it actually is a genuine paleontological discovery. So actual scientific discoveries here um, are being thrown out of the helicopter in the name of um, burying fake scientific discoveries and reinstating the natural order of sort of political and scientific harmony, right? That's how important it is. Um, Right. and And this,
1: I mean, and so, you know, in that sense, we might think of the, the meteor is sort of a perfect hyper real object right because it's it's this kind of inscrutable fusion of of the real and the fake or something like that um, and, or the real and the virtual so that you know so so the the thing that has to be buried is not simply the fact but the fact of the um, hybridization of fact with you know fiction or um, whatever. And so, I mean, in that sense, I'd say the meteor is also a figure of the novel, right? Which the novel itself is this hybridization of fact and fiction and what you're supposed to do with it when you're done with it is nothing, right? You're supposed to just um, put it away and start your next airport novel. So absolutely. um, So it, you know, as you said, it's a kind of ideological recontainment procedure that, you know, has gone through over and over again. And, you know, I think what's what's important to note here is that, you know, and this is another reason why I found, like, Digital Fortress, I mean, both these novels, particularly resonant in recent years, is just this odd way that, you know, we're all familiar with the structure where there's some revelation, if you think back to WikiLeaks or Snowden or whatever, that is put out there as being, you know, representing some sort of irreversible change in what we know. Um, and yet... That there is this kind of amnesiac response, where you know that that never quite happens. Um, you know, it's it's in fact the repeated revelations are themselves part of the sort of mundane structure of how we experience reality now. Yeah. Right. So by the time they're you know now it's like you know take the lab leak. You know, we we've sort of gotten to the point where the Biden administration can say, yeah, it's at least a possibility we're investigating, but like, nobody really cares. Nobody cares that much about Epstein anymore. You know, Maxwell was just trial. So this, this kind of um, structure of you know, this kind of um, world changing revelation followed by kind of stasis and amnesia is, is really just part of the basic kind of mediatic narrative, you know, mediatically determined narrative structure of our lives now.
0: Yeah. And and one of the things you get out of reading a Dan Brown novel is you get to experience what it's like to be involved in that maintenance, right? Rather than the information being hidden or thrown away, you get appealing protagonists who in some sense are your double and in a very clear sense are Dan Brown himself's double, who, who does the throwing away work, who does the hiding, the work of hiding the apparently politically destabilizing or revelatory secret, right? So, what you're given is action, agency over your own ignorance. And, um, and that's satisfying and, and, and it's an and anxiety managing. It's a, it's a good technique for being alive in a world that seems shot through with um, um, unresolvable conspiracies and where there's an overall crisis in the legitimacy of public knowledge.
1: So I think it would be helpful to dwell again on sexuality <clears throat> and, you know, the repeated threat of incest that is posited in these novels because particularly in the, the next two, the first two Langdon novels, Angels and Demons and da Vinci code, the, um, the celibacy of, you know, so suddenly we have another sort of hierarchical and secretive institution at the center of the narratives, which is the Catholic church and the theme of celibacy and the celibacy of, you know, the sort of prelates of the church becomes a central one. And, you know, Brown is, um, you know, da Vinci code is sort of, generally received and you know without getting into that too much as being a kind of sex positive critique of the the sort of prurience and fanaticism of of catholic um you know teachings on sexuality and that's another dimension which is perceived in ways that we can go into the sort of strangeness of as as a sort of feminist dimension of 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 the da vinci code but um in these novels you have in a sense, these institutions where the problem is actually the, you know, the problem is not celibacy. It's actually that um, the, the, particularly these kind of older men are, you know, can't keep their dicks in their pants. So obviously I think this relates to another, you know, important theme of the era, which is the sex scandal, right? Which is basically the most intuitive and, and recognizable, Dimension of of how you know revelations about pa- the sort of secret operations of power take place, right? right. And so obviously, this is, these are written in the '90s, an era dominated by the sex scandal as a sort of you know type as a type of political event. Um, and so you know in both of them, Brown is interested in these kind of um, age gap quasi incestuous relationships between symbolic father-daughter pairs um, although in one case that relationship is consummated the other one it isn't but you know the the problem with these institutions is somehow associated with the kind of the fact that sex is not functioning correctly within them
0: right it um absolutely um, I mean, we, we can't we can't leave deception point or this discussion without talking about the um, Mary Todd Lincoln, sex play, ghost sex play that in, uh, role-playing that, that, that is the culmination of, um, of deception, deception point, right? So Michael Tolland, the popular oceanographer and, uh, Rachel Sexton, the, um, NRO analyst, um, they, they stay in the Lincoln bedroom at the, at the close of the novel and, um, uh, Rachel closed the door behind her. She felt a clammy draft on her bare legs. Where is he? Across the room, a window was open, the white organza curtains billowing. She walked over to close the window and an eerie whisper murmured from the closet. Mary, Rachel wheeled. Mary, the voice whispered again. Is that you, Mary Todd Lincoln? Um... Right. So, uh, the, what's happening is that Tolland is in the closet and, um, you know, the, the way in which, uh, proper sexual relations are, are reestablished are by pretending to be the United States, right? Um, to pretending to be an existing functioning sexual relationship, um, at a, at a founding moment of U.S., you know, sort of ideological U.S. democracy, right? And, um, and, uh, and again, this, this is the alternative to um, uh, the, the scandalous sexual relationship of Senator Sexton with his aide, Gabrielle, right? And um, I think one of the important things about here is like, what kind of public sex is okay? And um, uh, what kind of, and by okay, I mean, Stabilizing of the U.S. government or, uh, or sort of political relations, and so uh, you know, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and Honest Abe uh, uh, ghost role play sex is is the kind of stabilizing functional um, uh, uh, thing to display, and the the threat to Senator Sexton's challenge for uh, President Herney for the um, is. Is the fact that he's had an affair with his um, young um, aide, right? And um, so, good and good and bad sex in public are um, are important themes that are going to happen here, and that will appear in the early Robert Langdon novels and um, before functional sexual relations um, begin to disappear entirely. And, I mean, what one of the other things we're going to get here is uh, in the course of these discussions is something like, um, you know, the genealogy of the incel or the um, the, the emergence of uh, the neat as a, a member of the elite or something. Like that. Right. Oh and, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and so as I recall, the inflection point, without getting too ahead of ourselves, is the lost symbol, where you have both. <clears throat> a sort of neat incel terrorist and you have again a, a kind of attempted reenactment of this type of a scene because you have langdon and and catherine his female counterparts sort of it's like they're they're sort of in dc and like watching the washington monument sort of penetrate the dawn but they can't you know it's like they can't quite um get around to fucking themselves right. so um, you know so there's this kind of displa- you know there ends up being these kind of displacements of 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 sexual consummation onto onto other things um yeah. but you know so it's i mean in, in the Lost symbol it ends up being about sort of letting the freemasons continue to enjoy right that's the the real enjoyment is is that of the freemasons <laughs> that, you know your own enjoyment is just sort of um the the the, the enjoyment of you know the vicarious um, enjoyment. You know the vicarious enjoyment of Freemasonry. But anyway, not without getting too much into that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's yeah. So all of these sexual themes, where you have this institution, which is, you know, on, on one hand, um, kind of challenged by its own um, by its own excesses which are, you know, both on the sort of um, literal sexual front and kind of on the level of its activities, um, you know, is is then, as we'll see, um, has its counterpart in the later novels and these other kinds of excess, which, you know, in the case of the Catholic Church takes this form of of the kind of, you know, perverse enjoyment that is celibacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which becomes a huge problem that has to be sort of confronted and dealt with.
0: Right, right. Um, but yeah. It's, well, it's important to note here also that these um, sort of pre-symbological novels are um, the protagonist, at least the, the, the central protagonist and is some sort of knowledge worker, but the knowledge worker is a woman. Um, uh Sexton in um Deception Points is uh what Dan Brown calls a gister. Um and so with her um superior intelligence and analytic skills, what she does is summarize documents for the consumption of the state. And um this is understood to be um analogous to the cryptographic work of Susan Fletcher in Digital Fortress, right? So there's a kind of translation of pre- pre-existing knowledge that is the, the thing that the protagonist is capable of doing and that this is a woman, yeah? And, um, and what we're about to witness is a pretty dramatic shift to the protagonist and the, um, a- the central agent of knowledge being a man and the status of women's knowledge changing, Um, in, in the Langdon novels. Um, So I guess, at least for today, we should just note that um, to know is always um, to know as a man or a woman in, um, in Dan Brown's, in Dan Brown's novels. Right. And that this is intimately related in to uh, the role that um, incest, celibacy, who gets to have sex, how, and who gets to enjoy it. Um, and uh, on a, in a sort of world of um, uh, normal patriarchy, um, how that, how that works here. Right. So it's, well, this is, it's it complicated rapidly, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, this makes me think of like those CIA ads. I mean, <laughs> clearly the, the woke CIA ads clearly like, yeah. the, you know, the, this is, you know, these novels are really about the, the beginning of the trajectory to where we have the, the sort of non-binary um, asexual CIA yeah. analyst, right? right. But, you know, the, in, in a sense, Brown is already kind of laying out the trajectory by which that comes into being. Um, so, I mean, so it's like the, the non-binary asexual CIA analyst is like, in a way, the sort of perfect subject of the world that he's, uh, right. that he's beginning to set out for us here.
0: We live in Dan Brown's universe is I think something we're probably both pretty committed to. uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I guess another point would be that he, um, the, you know, the the more, the simpler version of that would just be that he's um, you know, his feminism is, is tied to something quite specific, right. Which is the, I mean, something that's been talked about in, in recent years quite a bit, right? Which is that, you know, you have a feminization of the alphabet agencies, right? That that's right. that's a crucial aspect of what happens after the Cold War. Um, and particularly more recently that, that the security state becomes feminized through, you know, basically shifts in hiring practices, um, shifts in higher education patterns, et cetera. And yeah. so... You know, he's clearly very interested in this. And as I said, I think, you know, probably the most we we can get into the more arcane dimensions of his um, supposed feminism later. But, you know, the most straightforward version of it, as I said, is that in both of these, you have this, um, the state apparatus is represented as kind of having... You know, become unbalanced and unstable um, because of particularly these kind of older men within it, right? And so there is kind of a, a a project of reform that's being endorsed here that involves the kind of succession of these you know younger um, career women to these sort of alphabet agency posts.
0: Right. Right. It, uh, are you, which suggest- also
1: creates problems because. There, you know, because the older guys are still around and want to get it yeah. on with them. But, you know, nevertheless, it's it's represented as a kind of, um, you know, as a as part of the um, part of the way out of the the sort of deadlock is is simply to you know for these guys to, I mean, they they end up getting killed, right?
0: Right. Um, right. And so. Well, we'll have to discuss maybe in the future, Dan Brown's own sex scandal here. Um, Right, right, right. This is actually, because once again, um, it's basically impossible to cleanly differentiate between Dan Brown's biography, uh, the fate of employment and the function of U S government and the status of relations between the sexes in the United States. There, these are all one thing. And uh, but I, you know, I wanted to, you, you just suggested that things might get a little arcane and as though we had not, you know, immediately alienated your whatever audience is functioning here by talking about uh, novels that if they read them, they read them 20 years ago. Um, right. in, in something like the beginning of detail. And, um, and I mean, it seems cruel to suggest that anyone actually undertake close reading of these, but um, uh, it, it must happen. So someone has to do the important knowledge work of, uh, of reading Dan Brown and um, offering talland like popular uh, explanations of the you know, psychic life of power here.
1: Exactly. Well, I think we can wrap it up, um, at least as regards this episode and um, to be continued with, um, I think next, a discussion of the two, I would say sort of core canonical Langdon novels, which are Angels and Demons and the Da Vinci Code, where he takes on a new institution or an old institution that, you know, he becomes newly interested in, um, the Catholic church.
0: Absolutely. Looking forward to it.
1: Cool. All right. Until next time.